Woe to you, Pharisees and lawyers. The Lord be with you. A couple quick notes. There's a a couple things I want to highlight from today's readings that I think are especially important and not necessarily related to our to our context in Luke, but worth discussing a Bible class for sure. Uh, first, just a, a little note in case most of you, I'm sure, know uh, Matt Carlson, Seminarian Carlson. Uh, Matt's going out to Vicarage this week and out in California. He said it's only like a 30-hour drive. <laughs> uh, so he'll be vicaring um, in, in uh, California for the next year. So we'll keep him in our prayers as he... Uh, as he continues to be shaped and molded into the office of the ministry. And then we'll find out this coming spring where he is to serve as a pastor. So if you're not familiar with the process, typically the, um, the, the, the track, the on-ramp to becoming a pastor in the Missouri Synod is um, you have to have a four-year degree, an undergraduate degree. It doesn't matter of what. Um, hopefully it's something that, that would prove to be useful to you in your career. And then, uh, then you go to seminary, typically for two years, and then you, you have what's called a vicarage year, which is confusing because a lot of European churches call their pastors vicars, and so it's all confusing. But a vicar is not ordained, uh, just be a person in their third year of study, but it's a, year, a year-long internship. And then you come back to seminary with all the, with this new experience that you've had, and you've, you've gotten to apply all of your seminary training, and you realize like a lot of holes that you wanna like figure out the answers to, and, and maybe you, you encountered some ethical things you have questions about. And so you, you return to seminary your fourth year with renewed zeal uh, to, to continue your studies. And then you get your call that, that fourth year to wherever you're going, like we received Pastor Barton's uh, this, this year. Uh, Matt's kind of a unique situation because he was already in church, church service for 15, 10 years, 11 years as a, as a director of Christian education, a DCE. Uh, so he had his four-year degree, served in the church, but not as an ordained role. And then they brought him into seminary with a reduced, uh, kind of reduced... Um, expectations so he didn't have to take as many classes so he did two years of study and then his vicarage and then he'll be getting his call right away so that's kind of how that goes um it's always nice to have answers to questions that you didn't ask right but now you know today uh today in the the, there's a clear theme uh between all the readings but there's one thing i want to highlight i mean this we can't, we can't dwell on it enough because it really helps keep our priorities in check from the gospel reading on, uh, on building extra barns and such. But um, from the Old Testament lesson in Ecclesiastes, um, there's a couple lines I want to focus on. If you haven't been to church yet, you'll hear it in late service. But let me find it here. It's the classic, I've seen everything done under the sun and behold all this vanity and a striving after when this is vanity this kind of like empty seemingly meaninglessness of so many things so as as, as uh, so the wisdom of Solomon and Ecclesiastes would write um, so I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. 
well, that's just the way, like we all know the way that's the way life goes. Like you work, you follow the, the typical trajectory of life. Like you're young, you think you're going to live forever. You have all these aspirations and dreams and hopes. You go to college. Uh, you, you come to the United States and go to college in Maryland or whatever, and you, you get your degree, and then you pursue your career um, and whatever it is, and you work hard, and your life is kind of driven. It can be, especially for those without um, the right perspectives, it can be driven like exclusively by this pursuit of temporal things. Because really, if you don't believe in a spiritual realm, what else do you have to focus on. So your, your focus is fully on getting more stuff. I mean, we typically summarize that all with money because money buys stuff, you know, but ultimately this, this, this focus on the temporal realm and then you die and you can't take it with you. And so it's just given to somebody else. And so the, it's like you work your whole life, you save and save and save and save, you pour it all into your, your, your Roth IRA or whatever, and then you die. Just as maybe, maybe right as you're on the edge of, okay, now I'm going to retire this year and then we're going to travel. And that happens to be the year the Lord decides to call you home and you have all this money and then it's given over to, uh, well, you did, maybe depending on your life, you don't have a lot of family or whatever. So it's handed down to your nephew who you hardly ever knew, who you never really even liked, but he's still got blood, the blood relation to you. And now he's got all your money and you spend your entire life working for all this stuff. And now you, this one, the one guy you don't like, it's all your stuff vanity so so look at the, the the biblical picture just like we have solomon who has everything he's he is all the all the money one could ever want the the fame and honor that one would want everyone in the world the queen of sheba everyone's coming to solomon and and just admiring him and at the end of his life he says this all is vanity Interestingly, on the other side of the economic spectrum would be Job, from whom everything was taken, and he arrives at the same conclusion. Both of them are in this perspective that if I don't, though I have everything, or if I don't have everything, nothing matters unless I have the Lord. And when I have the Lord, it changes the way that I see everything in my life, so that if I have the Lord, then whether I have everything or have nothing, I have what matters and it prioritizes my life. So that then I can have stuff or not have stuff and it doesn't really affect me in the same way. So this Ecclesiastes continues, verse uh, 22, for all his days are full of sorrow and his work is vexation, even though in the night his heart does not rest so he's all worrying and he can't even, he's, he tries to sleep and he, he can't even, he can't even rest in his sleep. This is vanity. There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment, find joy in his toil. It's just this really sim simple statement there that this, there's, there's nothing better than simply to be able to eat and drink and, and find joy in your work. And that's really kind of what we're all after. I mean, so to, to, to be able to have a job that you enjoy or to flip it around is, is rather than doing, doing a job that you enjoy, actually finding joy in your job. You see the difference there? Because not everybody's going to be necessarily doing a job that they enjoy. 
You know, you have, you graduate high school, you're really good at math, and so you think, I'm gonna go into actuarial science, whatever that's called. And then you finally, you, you go through all your college stuff, you've, you've poured $150,000, $200,000 into your degree, and you finally get a job, and you hate it. But now you have all this debt, and you happen to be pretty good at this, but you don't really, you don't really find joy in it. So it's just kind of a means to an end. So that's kind of this meaninglessness of your job. So at least for us as Christians, we're able to see the doctrine of vocation has us seeing the job that we're doing, though we might not like it, we realize that it's paying, it's, it's, it's feeding the kids, it's putting a roof over the head, or I'm serving the people that, the, the clients, whoever they might be. So it's about looking at the neighbor, it's looking past the job to those that I'm serving to give us joy. But even then, to find, to, to eat and drink and find joy. Have you ever, like, would you, so growing up on this farm in Mississippi, we were just working all the time, doing harder, much harder stuff. I mean, now I just sit and read and talk to people for a living, but I used to, like, have to wrangle horses and do hooves and fix fences. So now whenever I'm home in, for Mississippi, like, in your perspective, I'm taking a vacation. I go to Mississippi and dad thinks, I'm getting a free worker for a week. And so I get, like, I get to Mississippi and like, I have to bring my work clothes because I know dad's gonna have me doing something while I'm there. But it's remarkable, like, you, and you've all done this. Like whenever you have to like, when you're moving or like a Saturday you wanted to work in the yard, like you, when you really work hard, you, it's like you never eat better. No matter what you build, you actually build up an appetite that you actually enjoy eating. Or if you're really, really hot and sweaty, but working outside, that, that water like never tasted so good. Versus when you're full, or you haven't really done anything all day, you don't really have an appetite. Or if you haven't really sweated, you're not really thirsty. So the idea of like water, like I don't want water. First world problems, right? Like, I don't want water. I want something that has more flavor than water. But when you've actually been working, notice the tie here between this hard work and a, and a joy in eating and drinking, the satisfaction. And that's just some, some, some of what Psalm is pointing out after living his whole life and having ultimately everything. It's like, well, it doesn't really matter if you haven't really worked for what you have. Um, you don't even have that much joy in 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 using it or spending it. Verse 20, so uh, this also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, apart from God, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? So here he takes this step. Like ultimately, the joy that I have in eating and drinking and working has to come from the Lord's hand. It's from the hand of God. For apart from God, who can eat or who can have any enjoyment at all? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, that is not to say that anybody is not a sinner, but it means in contrast to those who, who believe in God, he has given the busyness of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. That is, outside of this eternal perspective or outside of faith in God, life is simply reduced to gathering and collecting only to die and leave it to somebody else. And so there's a meaningless, meaninglessness, a vanity to it. And so we, we as, as our, our life as sinners and saints, though living in our, our sinful flesh, 
we are constantly being drawn back to that temporal only view of, I just got to keep making money. There's a great line at the end of uh, Mary Poppins, which I've been forced to watch repeatedly lately. Uh, so it's when uh, Dick Van Dyke's character, AKA Bert, <laughs> uh, he's talking to the dad from Mary Poppins. I forget that guy's name. Uh, and he's like, remember, if you remember, if you remember the setting of Mary Poppins, the, the general plot line, even though Mary Poppins gets all the attention, I guess the movie's actually about, it's supposed to be kind of about dad. And he's so focused on the job and, and, get, and, and, and just going to work, doing the nine to five, making the money. And he comes home and there's like, there's a song at the beginning. I, I come home at five, I say hey to the kids, and then they go to bed. And I don't have to spend time with them anymore. I can have my brandy and enjoy the evening. So the kids are just kind of, it's like Downton Abbey. You see the kids for a second, you put them to bed. Uh, but then the, the perspective shifts towards the end of Mary Poppins where Bert's singing this song on how you spend your whole life working so hard and finally you're like, okay, I, I want to focus on my kids. And as soon as you start to focus on them, they're gone. Like it's, he describes it as sands, like trying to hold on to sand trying to hold on to water. I forget which analogy he uses. As, as soon as you have it in your hand, it's gone. And that's the time with our, with our loved ones. And so he shifts in his perspective and then, then he goes and what's he do? Let's go fly a kite uh, because all this other stuff doesn't really matter. So putting, there's a joy. So uh, to use that maybe to, to step from a Christian perspective though, isn't just to focus on your family for the sake of focusing on family, but rather um, to see our jobs, not as this, like this is all that matters in this world is making a bunch of money because I'm just gonna die and it's gonna be given to the next guy. I'm not even gonna get to enjoy it. I can't take it with me. There's a meaninglessness and a pointlessness and a vanity to life therein, but rather wanna see our lives as a gift to us from God, all that we have and that we don't have, and we see our life in view of service. So the people he puts in front of us in our jobs, the people he's given us in our family, that we're now given to serve them. And yes, even our jobs, our nine to five uh, making of money, that though is not the end in itself. That's always viewed in light of the people that I'm serving in my job and in light of the people that I'm serving with the money that I'm getting. Otherwise, it's just vanity. What's the point? I'm just gonna die and then is the, anything that I make is going to be given to the next guy, you know? And there's, there's no joy there. And so we hear the wisdom of Solomon in Ecclesiastes, that very point, that, that God, is, uh, God is the one who's giving us joy in our labor. And then that, that ties, I mean, in a way it ties to the epistle lesson where, where Paul is reminding us to seek the heavenly things, the things that are above, in contrast to the earthly things. But in the gospel reading from today, the, it's this classic parable of build, the building of barns guy. So uh, um, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. What is covetousness? Wanting something that you don't have. Now, so it's, you want to sit on this for a little bit because ultimately, like, there's one thing to want to want something and it's okay, because ultimately you have to make a decision. I, go, I, I, need, I need a new shirt. 
I need new shoes. I want to eat, I want to eat something for supper. So am I coveting because I'm hungry and I want to eat something for supper and I have to choose between pizza and burgers or whatever it is? Am I, co- is that, co- well, no. Coveting, it, it becomes coveting when it's the desire for something you don't have actually destroys the joy with what you do have. So that like, and this, we all, we all do this. It exposes the sinful flesh within us. So like, as soon as you get a new house, you see like, oh, or especially for the, everybody I talk to who has like designed their own home. Like, I haven't met anyone yet who's content with, the, with their house that they actually designed for themselves. Because there's always like, oh, we wish we would have put the hinges on that other side of this door. Or we, all, we, we wish we would have, I don't know why we, we built this dining room. We never sit in the dining room. We should have made a bigger kitchen. Whatever the thing is, there's always like, there's always this other, this, this, this ideal picture beyond ourselves that eradicates, it starts to dissolve the joy of what we do have. You get a new car. As soon as you get the, the latest Tesla, whatever it is, they're gonna, next year it'll be a hover Tesla. You're like, ah, oh, I wish I had the hover Tesla. You know, like whatever, whenever we get something in our hands and we think it's gonna bring us joy and there's always something else that eats away at the joy. So regarding against that, to the covetousness. It's not just stuff, by the way. That's why the, the commandments, nine and 10, it's wife is included in spouse. So that this happens to marriages all the time. Like, so when a person gets married and they have, they have their marriage, and there's a unique conversation within a certain marriage, but then like some, and there's a different dynamic in a different marriage. And there's maybe aspects of things that, that somebody said, well, I wish, I wish my wife was more like that, or I wish my husband was more like that. And then it just kills your marriage. So get your nose out of their marriage. Stick it in your own. I love the wife that you have, or the husband that you have, the stuff that you have, right? Um, so guard against all covetousness. And then he gives this parable, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. I've got, I've got so much stuff, I don't know what to do with it. And he said, I'll do this. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will sell, say to my soul, soul? <laughs> you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? That's Ecclesiastes. The stuff that you've worked so hard to save up is just passed on to somebody else. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This is in Luke. In Matthew, it's store up for yourself treasures in heaven. Uh, we'll come back to this in three or four years when we get to Luke 12. But um, <laughs> now the, the pericopes have, have now passed us. So now we're going to be playing catch. It's just a helpful, there's, there's wisdom. So we, we get the, the wisdom piece of it, which is all law. So on the one hand, for me to say to you and, and for me to hear it for myself, to guard against covetousness and how it destroys earthly joy and how the way to earthly joy is laid out, joy is laid out for us on seeing everything in our lives as a gift, rejoicing what we have, rejoicing what we don't have, giving thanks for these things and knowing, being, being ever mindful of the temporality of the stuff of this life. Because it is the, it's, it's usually the stuff of this life that causes us such angst, you know? It's funny, the, uh, the uh, my basement in Colorado flooded 
like shortly after we bought the house. That was a bummer. <laughs> and it just like consumed us for a couple of years, fixing the basement, you know, trying to get out just so, it, it, it got a lot of our focus. And uh, Gail Sudis died on Friday. Um, sad to, to have her to have her go, but we rejoiced that she is with her Lord. And she gave the like the coolest confession. Like as she's dying, she's just Gail is just like completely eaten up. She's dying, and she's laying in bed. Her son's there, and she's like, she's like, I'm having this conversation with Gail. Gail, you're you're dying. So when you make the decision, okay, stop the treatment and put me on hospice. And she's like, totally cool with it. She's like, well, I know I'm the Lord. How'd she say it? I know I'm God's child. He's got me. I'm okay. And here's this, her body's just completely dying. And she died the next day. What a great, we have the kind of faith that we pray for. But while Gail's going through all this, as I found out from her son, Mike, like her, her basement flooded. Because she's in the hospital. He was, Rich has dementia really bad, so now Rich is in a home. And the, the house is essentially unoccupied. And they had a, a slow drip in the basement. Bloop, bloop, bloop. Well, that adds up. And apparently the entire basement was flooded and molded and everything. And it's the kind of thing that all their stuff, like all of the, the, the trinkety nostalgia things. Have you ever been to Rich, the Sudis basement? It's like weird, like... He's a ton of like pheasants, mounted pheasants and fishing gear and all the stuff like vintage car memorabilia. Doesn't matter. So we asked, I was with Mike and we we're talking to Gail. And like, so Gail, is there anything that, that was really important to you that we should like get out of the basement? Um, she's like, no. But if I had asked her that five years ago, it would have just kind of like, have you ever like tried to go through your stuff? Okay, we're gonna clean the basement this year. All of a sudden, everything is really, really important to you. But then when you go to like help your grandmother-in-law, like, like we're doing it for my, my, my wife's side of the family, like when, when grandma's not there and you're cleaning out the basement, really nothing is important, especially for me. I'm not even, it's maybe has sentimental attachment to some of these things, but for me, I'm like, <laughs> Why does she have so many decorative wreaths? Roll out the dumpster, you know? And yet for her, it was like she carefully put these things in bags and sealed them so they would be preserved and hung them up carefully in the basement so they would be, so they just kind of, there's a focus on caring for these earthly things. And that's, we want to take care of our stuff, but we always want to be mindful that if it's not going to be important to you on your deathbed, don't let it rob you of joy now. And you keep that, that eternal perspective helps, helps us like be okay somewhat when you walk out of the iPhone store and you drop your iPhone on the floor immediately and it shatters. <laughs> oh, what a waste and kind of laugh and say, oh, I'm an idiot and just move on. But it's not like devastating in the same way as if, if all I've got is this earthly stuff, you know? It's a different perspective. Anyway, that's wisdom from Solomon and also our Lord Jesus today. We, we certainly hear the law there, convinced, convicting ourselves of our, of our focus on temporal things and how, quickly are, how quick we are to forget the eternal. Uh, and also, we, we, we convince ourselves that joy is found in the earthly stuff. Is that not like the constant 
that's the appeal of every commercial, every billboard that joy, there's this picture of joy if I just have more stuff. That, uh, that's, that's marketing 101. That you gotta have, you're trying to sell a car, you put a guy in the car who has joy. You're trying to get somebody to come to your restaurant. They gotta, they're, they're joyfully eating their hamburger or whatever they're doing. It's, it's all about joy. And, and then as we all know, you have, as soon as you have that thing, you don't actually have the joy. I mean, there's probably, there's cool stuff to the, to be sure that God's gifts in this life are to be enjoyed rightly. And so, you know, you get a new car, it's like, all right, this is fun. You know, it, it smells nice still. <laughs> uh, whatever the thing is, we can enjoy these things. But if we think that that's all joy is, then it's gonna, it's just, it's a wisp. You won't actually enjoy it. But with joy coming from the proper place, and understanding our lives as a gift from God, understanding our place in life as a gift from God, understanding all that we have and all the people around us as a gift to serve and love, that changes our ability to have joy no matter what. Stuff comes and goes, people come and go, but the Lord's given me joy in something and seeing life in a different way. Very helpful wisdom there. We're always, we're always, the devil's always sucking us away from that. That's the, the promise of the, the devil in the Garden of Eden, right? The fruit, the forbidden fruit is going to bring you joy. Oh, because you'll be like God in that situation. And so take the fruit. All sin masquerades as this fruit that brings promises that it ultimately can't deliver on, right? So that's our, that convicts us of our sin and ultimately then turns us to our Lord who then actually forgives us and sets us free from our, from our sin our sinful uh, temporal focuses. Any questions or comments or thoughts on that? The unscripted first half hour of Bible study. All right. Yes. We were devastated. We lost $1.2 billion. Billion? Billion. Friday. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> the lottery ticket, the the, uh, the the potential promise of 1.7 billion dollars that you that you never actually got to enjoy. Thank you for that unhelpful comment. <laughs> Luke 11. Woe to the Pharisees and lawyers. That's on the back of your handout. The large, the large excerpted box. Okay, I guess yeah, it's the back. Um, oh, I, I keep forgetting this. There's no, a note to myself. I see he's seeing this orange post-it note here. Um, Pastor Bartons is putting together a, a devotion, a family uh, or a house devotion for the congregation every week. And we're, we're, he's starting to get ahead of it so he can roll it out at the start of the school year on Church Family Sunday, August 14th. But it's going to go through the daily. There's a, there's a thing called a daily lectionary. So you can read through the scriptures over the course of a year. So it's going to have like hyperlinked um, daily lectionaries and some prayers and some really basic things that can, be, that can be catered to your personal time and schedule and such. Everybody's got a devotional, many devotions in their home, uh, but not everybody maybe is using it. 
Um, or maybe you've got a devotion, you start off the year with some kind of high, high hopes of doing this devotion. So our, our hope is to put together a very, very primitive, simple devotion that you can, you can use with, uh, at your house, you can use it with your family uh, before, di- before breakfast, before dinner, something like that. And you can use it for 30 seconds, a couple of minutes, whatever your personal schedule allows. Uh, he asked me to, to start building up excitement for that. So start getting excited for that. Verse 37 of chapter 11. While Jesus was speaking, so remember he had just come off the heels of the light in you. No one puts a light, no one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar, but on a stand talking about how uh, careful, let, be careful lest the light in you become darkness. If your whole body is full of light, Having no part in the dark, it will be wholly bright as where a lamp with its rays gives you light. So Jesus is shooting after making what's making within us light and not dark. While he's speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. And so I kind of like, we fast forward from the the previous context to he went in uh, to a Pharisee's home to have dinner. Now we mentioned this early at the beginning of Luke, but uh, Luke is full of, lots of these dinner conversations. And typically it was the night before the Sabbath, the, the speaker who was gonna be speaking in the temple the next day was often invited over to a, like a prestigious Pharisee's house to eat with him. And he would kind of give him a, a snippet of the sermon for the next day. That's the idea. So it was common practice for whoever the, whoever the priest was going to be, whoever the Pharisee was going to be, who was going to be serving in the, in the temple or the, ne- or the synagogue, I should say, the next day, it was common to invite them over for dinner and then hear a little bit about, hear some teaching. And it was maybe going to be teaching, it was going to be expounded upon further the next day. So it, you might not have caught it because we're going so painfully slowly through Luke, but he's constantly getting invited over to Pharisees' homes to eat. And in the context of eating, He's teaching. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. Now, it's important to to make a distinction here between the counsel that we give to our seven-year-old, like who's been playing outside or wash their hands after they go to the bathroom or whatever. This is a totally different context. The science behind like, oh, we should wash our hands to kill bacteria. The knowledge of germs didn't come until I think the 1800s. Um, so fascinating history there, but um, it was a, I think it was a Christian guy, anyway. But, so the washing of hands here wasn't like because you got germs on your hands from what you did earlier and you weren't, but this is all about temple, temple purity. Interestingly enough though, there was, there's a lot of these like temple purity things that are consistent they're like, oh, it's, it's good to wash your hands after you get blood on them. Like we know that because a lot of times this is how diseases are, but there's not the science behind diseases. That stuff wasn't there. But the priests were supposed to wash their hands according to Exodus and Leviticus. The priests are supposed to wash their hands before serving in the tabernacle. That was it though. It was limited to like, if I'm a priest and I'm serving in the tabernacle and often it involved dealing with food. But in classic Pharisee form, the Pharisees are always adding laws. We call them uh, hedges or fences around the law in the same way that you could say um, 
like for a classic example for the, the Southern Baptist perspective would be there are certain things that are sinful such as adultery, uh, sex outside of marriage. Um, so if, you want to, if you're trying to protect against sex outside of marriage, it's probably good to not ever dance with someone of the opposite sex. Now, as a side note there, it's not bad advice. I mean, there's a reason. I mean, dancing, you're, you're, very, you're in intimate proximity to someone of the other sex. I mean, it's, it's an awkward thing to dance with someone. If you're married and you're like dancing with another woman, it's, just, it's, it's, not, it's not really a proper thing. But, uh, but the law doesn't say not to dance with someone of the opposite sex. The law says don't commit adultery. So the Pharisee would step in and say, or, or the Southern Baptist, to stick with that analogy, will make a law against dancing because from dancing could come other sins. Drinking the same way. Drinking is certainly not forbidden in the scriptures. And yet, is it, and yet is the wrong uh, conjunction there, but um, from our own experiences, it's interesting how you drink too much alcohol and you end up letting your lips flap a little too much and say things that you regret or do things that you shouldn't do, right? It's like, there's a reason why bar fights happen. It's not because they're, it's 9 a.m. and they're totally sober having a cup of coffee and talking theology and they just start, a brawl breaks out. See, they've been drinking way too much and they kind of lose their, ra- their, their reason. So, but, the, but drinking isn't sinful. So, but we'll make a law against drinking, put a fence around the law so that we'll try to prevent you even getting close to breaking the commandment. You see? So you have all these ad- additional laws that were created um, by the Pharisees that were not in the law. And yet, the, from the Pharisees' perspective, they're, they're law. They're still law. In the same way, to, to stick with the Southern Baptist analogy, you talk to a Southern Baptist, a consistent Southern Baptist person today, and it's like, no, I mean, drink, drinking is sinful, um, dancing is sinful, depending on who you're talking to, right? And it's in their mind, it's equated, the law is equated um, because you're so close, it, it could lead to other sins. So here, washing hands before dinner was a tradition that had started among the Pharisees, having to do a temple, clean, temple clean, cleanness, not sanit, sanitation in the same way that we're thinking about it at all, right? This is pre-COVID hand washing. So Jesus intentionally doesn't wash his hands. Do you think Jesus knew that the Pharisees were big on washing their hands? Of course. Do you think Jesus knew what he was doing when he didn't wash his hands? Yes. In the same way that like when I'm at my Southern Baptist family's house, that you like, you don't bring beer to, their, to, the, to those family gatherings unless you want to make a point, which I often do. <laughs> Like, you're, you're a pastor? <laughs> yeah. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. This is the, this is the key distinction that, that Jesus is going to keep unfolding here for the next, for the, really the rest of this section, is this focus on outward cleanness but leaving the inside dirty. I think that's the first hand, the question I have in your handout, the, the primary focus of the Pharisees versus 
the, the, the primary focus of Jesus. So as we sing in the offertory and from Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart, O God. Jesus is after the heart. Jesus is after cleaning the, the inside. Get a clean tree and you're gonna bear clean fruit. But the Pharisees are in this way of like trying to duct tape fresh fruit on a dead tree. You have like the, the Christmas tree from the Peanuts, uh, what is that called? Christmas, Charlie Brown's Christmas tree. You like, not that there's, Christmas trees don't bear fruit, but so why do I go, oh. But you, you take, take a fresh apple and you walk up to a dead tree and duct tape it on. Obviously that doesn't, it doesn't work like this. It's silly. It's a stupid enough. And yet that's the idea the Pharisees are focusing on trying to get fr fresh, good, clean looking fruit on dead trees. And Jesus is looking at it in the same way that we would look at a, tre a dead tree with, with a fruit duct tape to it. He's saying, no, you gotta, you gotta cut down the tree and plant a new one and fertilize it and keep it pure, clean. Jesus is cleaning the inside. The Pharisees are focused on the outside. Um, inside you are full of greed and wickedness, you fools. And also, in other contexts, you get the word hypocrites, this false, this false face, this artificial, these facades. Like it looks one way, but behind it is something completely different. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. So what are alms? Yeah, so there's usually a distinction made between alms. I mean, we kind of conflate them all together because... A lot of times the offerings, especially Bethany, for example, we've got our benevolent fund. And so money, that, a certain percentage of the money that goes in the offering plate um, can work its way towards those in need in various ways. Which, by the way, we have that. Uh, we have a special fund called the benevolent fund you can, you can contribute to. And so when we have members that are in tight spots, um, they get laid off and so forth to try to help them pay the bills for a couple months until they can get things sorted out. Um, that's that's kind of alms, but we're in Naperville, right? So, I mean, for us, poverty is is a it's pretty far away. Um, alms would be helping those in need, showing mercy. The word alms actually comes from the same Greek root as mercy, so it's usually charitable giving. So a lot a lot of ch cases, you know, think of people think about their giving like they give money to the church to support the church, but then there's also like charitable giving is something they're supporting other people in need in other ways you can do it all at once if you want so it's all up to your own personal freedom but alms is something different it's a focus on mercy and that's the point here it's this giving uh give it give as alms get show us mercy but it's not about money it's those things that are within so what's from within what's the thing that jesus is after from within the clean heart the goodness so he wants, he wants the mercy coming from the heart, from within. And then as you live, everything is clean from you. Everything is clean for you, he says. So we clean the inside. Again, as coming off the heels of talking about inner light and inner darkness. He puts light on the inside. Everything is light. 
clean the inside, and then let the alms, let mercy flow out of you and everything is clean from you when the inside is clean. But woe to you Pharisees. Earlier in Luke, he had all the blesseds, the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit and so forth. Um, here, now he flips it to the woes. Woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. Um, so, the, this word, so the tithe here, um, it's, it's probably helpful to flesh that out a little bit. Very often, in the, it's just unrelated to giving and the way we think about tithing, by the way, in the New Testament, what's the prescriptive amount of money you're supposed to give to church? That's a bad question. What's the prescriptive amount of money that you have that belongs to God? All of it. Tithe comes from a, a, it's a God-given Old Testament view that when you've got an entire tribe of Israel that was prevented from working, what was their job? Work in the temple. They weren't given land. Remember when they take over the promised land and all the land is like divvied up? The tribe of Levi isn't given land. They're having to work in the, so they couldn't actually, in our, from our perspective, they couldn't actually get a job and make money and raise cows and all this. Where did their money, where did their food come from? To take money out of it. Where do they eat? Where do they get their food? It was, the, it was the money, it was the stuff brought to the temple. So you bring in the food for the sacrifices. They don't just burn it up so it's gone. They cook it and eat it. That was the, that was the way of that giving. Many of the sacrifices function in that way. As we get into the New Testament, you lose any connection to that, to a tithe as a set 10% um, that's supposed to be like pledged and given specifically to the church. There's a totally different, a totally different formula of giving when, it, when you look at the New Testament church. It's helped, I mean, the 10% idea, a lot of people still run with that and that's fine. It's, it's, it's all done in freedom, right? So you could do 50, you, know? so you could do less, whatever it is. The idea is all that you have has been given to you by God all that you have belongs to God and is meant to be used in service to him. So it kind of frees you up to say, okay, what, what, what does the church need? What can I afford? What can I, how do I want to support the church here? But also, who gave, who gave you your kids? God gave you your kids. So you got to put, you got to put clothes on their back, take them to the hospital. Uh, uh, whatever the medical bills pile up and so forth, but it kind of, it prevents, it, it, cuts a, it cuts away at this idea that there's this money that I give to God and this money is somehow like holy or better or something. And there's this money that I spend on everything else that's not God as, as much as God pleasing. Well, no, no, the, the money that I, when, when I buy flowers for my wife, that's God pleasing. Um, there's also a way I can spend money in a non-God-pleasing way, right? And that's, I mean, that, that, that law hits each of us in different ways, but we just wanna be mindful that, so when I'm spending my money, it's, it's money that God has given me, I'm using it in service to God in various ways. And of course, like we have a church. And so we, we pay, we gotta keep the lights on and, and have the, the really noisy fan thing going on 24 hours a day and it costs money. So we, well, that's, where, that's where the money kind of comes from. But it's not as prescriptive as the Old Testament. It's because 
it's, it's a little bit different than when you have a whole tribe of Israel that's, take, that's not given land. That's where that idea comes. So for the Pharisees, is there, when you run across this word tithe in the New Testament, in every situation, it's always used against the Pharisees. The Pharisees are tithing, and it's always a bad example. I'm not saying you shouldn't tithe. I'm obviously personally incentivized to encourage you to do so. <laughs> Uh, that's, where, that's where my money even comes from, as a people's generosity to the church. But the idea here is you have these Pharisees who are they're going out to their, their little mint gardens, their, their herb gardens, and they're, they're taking a tenth of their herbs, and they're giving that to God in some way, taking it to the temple. And they're, they're so folk. I mean, this is an interesting choice. Have you, have you, do you have mint? You mint julep fans out there? Yeah, you can grow mint in your back. It's an invasive weed, by the way. You don't want to plant that next to your other stuff. It needs a pot to itself. But your mint grows. You know how when you're snipping off mint? Anybody, anybody else that grow mint or just me? So you have mint in your backyard. You go out there. You, like, you pinch it off with your fingernail. But you're kind of precise. You have these little leaves and you're out there. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a big guy. I'm, not, I'm lurched over picking off tiny leaves off this mint. It's a silly thing. I think Jesus is wanting us to, to catch that silliness. So you focus on this precise, t- to get a tenth of my mint, what do I have to first decide? The total amount? And then figure out what a tenth of that would be. And then I'm down there pinching off a tenth of my mint. And that's consuming. That kind of thing is consuming the Pharisees outward. And what are they leaving up? The actual justice and love of God. That is not justice in general, but specifically God's justice and the love both for God and love from God. The stuff that the Pharisees are supposed to be doing and the stuff that the scriptures call us to do is actually uphold what is right and wrong and to show the love of God and mercy. Those things aren't even on the radar for them. It's all about external things. Now, Jesus isn't just saying this to the Pharisees for fun. Okay, so we're running out of time. Yeah, we're out of time. Um, and I'll, I'll <laughs> next week when I start talking about something else, tell me to stop and get, get on the subject. But Jesus is having this conversation with the Pharisees specifically to turn them in repentance from their sin. But also, and more importantly for us, he's saying it to you and me. Because while we don't maybe get focused on this external mint and and rue or whatever it is. That, like, but it's, we can get wrapped up on the external actions as though those are the things that are the matter most and not the heart. So think about, we're, we're usually good at doing that and judging our neighbor. So we look at their actions and we judge our, the actions of our neighbor um, without like putting the best construction on things. A good example of this would be like, um, you got somebody sitting in the front pew uh, at church and they're just falling asleep and they snore. And, uh, and it's, it's, a, it's a boring sermon anyway, so I expect this, but it's like snoring. It's, it's always nodding off and it's getting to be a distraction. And you look over at him like, this guy, can he just sleep at home? And I, I'm not sleeping. I, I'm, I'm doing a better job of paying attention. This guy's sleeping. He should be as good as I am. And then you find out like, Oh, he just started, um, he's got cancer pretty bad and he's definitely going to die soon. The doctor's got him on some pretty heavy meds um, to help his pain, but he really, really, really wanted to go to church because that's ultimately all that matters to him. 
Doesn't that make you feel terrible about making fun of him for snoring in church? That's how the Lord would have us thinking about judging our neighbors outwardly. We, we really want to pass, push past all that and put the best construction on things. Whether it be kids not behaving in the pew next to you as you might think that you raised your kids better or whatever. I would do things so differently. Or in my church, when I was growing up, we did this or that. Uh, your church here at Bethany, like, wait, wait, you're a member here too. This is your church too, right? So these kind of, we're quick to, we're quick on the trigger to judge other things, but push past that and get to the heart, you know, put the best construction on things and, um, and not be so wrapped up in these outward actions because you can have a lot of outward actions be completely dead on the inside. We can do a lot of things right externally, but be completely hollow on the inside. I can have a, a father can have his, family completely still in the pew out of fear of significant abuse when they get home. I'd rather have the kids scrambling around knowing that dad loves them. Wouldn't you? Right? So let's keep, let's not focus on these outward things. We'll pick up with the, with the Pharisees and we'll, we will finish the Pharisees, God willing, next week and get into chapter 12. Uh, we're, we're past time. The Lord be with you.